0: Pleasure to welcome to our series this afternoon, Mr. Jeff Levy AO. Jeff, you've had an extraordinary career of which we'll go through in great detail shortly. But before we do, I wanted to start with your background. You were born in South Africa in 1959. Take us through the early part of your life, if you could, and growing up in South Africa.
1: Uh, not, not, not not a huge thing to talk about. I grew up in, in a very loving sort of... Uh, all encompassing Jewish type of family, um, in a in a small in a smaller suburb of a big city called Java called Victory Park. Went to a really good school there all my years. Where where we, um, you know, we, we're, where a guy like me could be the top rugby player. That's how bad our team was, you know what I mean. And uh, we we it was kind of um, nothing exceptional. Um, parents were middle class. In the context, we, it was apartheid South Africa. So as one was getting a little bit older, you started to become aware of what that you do. You weren't that happy to be there because um, uh, it, it, it didn't feel right <laughs> for obvious reasons. And and it wasn't that easy to be against the system. Uh, as, and I was I, I finished school in 1976. So coming into the late 70s, coming to university, it was at a time where it was very hard to want to be there um, within the system and friends of mine were getting arrested and we would always be on protests at the university. And it was, uh, it was one of those sort of tumultuous times when things were starting to turn a little bit. It was a long time till 92, but I left there. I met a girl actually, whose family immigrated out of South Africa. And um, I, was, I was doing a commerce law degree in South Africa at the time at Wits University. She came to Australia, and so when I had a uni vac, I was, you know, Australia were playing England and uh, the West Indies in cricket, and I thought that's a great opportunity because South Africa had been isolated in sport to go watch the cricket, but it was actually to see the girlfriend, and managed to, I had a little um, um, business I ran with a, with a friend of mine at university, so we saved enough money to come on a flight out here, loved it, and found out that you, I could come and do my LLB here. In those days it was quite easy to get into the country, there was no queues for immigrants. Um, and in, I, I arrived here at the end of 1980, beginning of 81, and um, went to New South Wales Uni to do law, to do what they call graduate law. I'd done a BCom, but because I had credits for a legal BCom, I had, had to only do two years of that. And um, best thing, that, luckiest thing that ever happened to me and was very lucky at university there. But South Africa was just, um, I, was, I was typical.
0: <laughs> you studied, as you mentioned, a Bachelor of Commerce back in South Africa and then transferred to Australia and did a Bachelor of Law. What, what prompted that decision, studying commerce first and then moving into the law where you later practiced as a solicitor?
1: Well, when I was choosing my degrees, my brother was doing medicine and I hated blood. So the next best thing was gonna be a lawyer, you see because I knew I was gonna leave the country and you need something that, that may be useful in that regard. And I thought you, you could either go straight law, arts law, commas law, but knowing that commas had counting and I was quite good at maths and things like that, that's where I went. You also could do a bit of computers, which in those days was actually just punching in things on a, on a, you know, on a, on a cobol was the name of the language. Uh, uh, we used to add a thing called business data um, processing and actually that business data processing was useful to me when I was coming to Australia because my first job here when I arrived as a student was actually with in those days called Telcom. telecom is now Telstra and um, because I had this year of data processing <laughs> I, I was suddenly a systems analyst that didn't mean I didn't know too much but <laughs> and then uh, um, managed to get into the law school at New South Wales Uni which was very really lucky um to i got tertiary education assistance scheme tees which was 25 dollars a week which actually covered my rent just to put it in perspective and i rented in a little flat below um an old couple's house in out there in Bellevue hill uh, which was which was which was fun and then uh, at night i'd work every usually from 11 o'clock at what used to be called the Bondi tram which is a, not the tram that goes, because it was already gone, but the actual place of the, the pub there by the Bondi Hotel. It's called the Bondi Tram. And I was so good in the bar that all they'd ever let me do is put up, you know, carry the glasses off the tables. They didn't even let me pour the drinks. Um, but, it, it, but it was good, because you got almost, you got good rate, because it was late at night. Used to close at three, and it was really good for me while I was a student. It paid for everything else I needed. I arrived here only with... Uh, two suitcases, one was my clothes, the other was a bunch of books I had. We didn't have, we weren't yet into, you know, digital science so, <laughs> could have saved me a lot of luggage. And um, didn't have much savings, other than from my little, we had this little business, a friend of mine, actually lives in WA now, David Goldman, where we sold lovey's cushion dunes and we had another one where we sold little briefcases which were a little bit damaged so we bought them from the wholesaler damaged very cheaply and sold it to students f- for what was a lot less than they would ever pay in a shop and they didn't mind it being slightly damaged you know because it was but it looked really smart and everyone who was doing law or whatever liked to walk around with a briefcase so we, it was good <laughs> So you've spoken about
0: your background. Let's talk about your early executive career. You joined Freehill, Hollingdale and Page in 1983 as a solicitor. Take me through your, your experiences at
1: the firm. Well, I first was very lucky because um, when I was at uni, I got a summer clerk job at Freels. They used to call us Summer Beatles mm-hmm. and uh, worked there my penultimate year and uh, was lucky enough uh, to meet an amazing guy called Kim Santo the late Kim Santa, who was, who, was, who was always very kind and nice to me. And he had this young man working with him called David Gonski. And, um, and so from day one, I kind of met these, these people who turned out to be the ma- like, most lucky thing you could ever wish to work for people like that. And um, when I arrived there in 83, though, my first job was actually in the property area where I worked with um, some terrific people. Uh, partners there were Peter Short and Greg Pearson. They, and we learnt, and they taught me a lot of interesting stuff, which was good. And then eventually, I moved into more of the M and A stuff as I was a couple of years in, and worked in the in the in the group with uh, Kim and David. And um, I think they were running around, you know, saving BHP or something. So all the little jobs got thrown to me. So I ended up, you know, sink or swim, and was lucky enough to make sure they were there to cover my back when I screwed up, which uh, luckily didn't do too much of, and built quite a nice practice in M&A and um, was very fortunate to become a partner there at the age of 27 and um, enjoyed my time immensely then, was involved in some very um, large matters and at that the time uh, there were a lot of interesting characters and, and spent, uh, at one stage was in, uh, spent nearly six months in the States in 1988 with my family because we were working on a a deal which was cross-border and ended up staying there longer than I was supposed, but I loved it and worked in a firm there called um, as a as a visiting partner called Scan Mar and Flom, and got lucky there to meet a guy called uh, Flom, which was always, always great because later on, when I came back to Australia and there was a lot of cross-border work coming from the America, we um, we you know I was someone they knew, so I got referred. It was so all these things are you know about your Right place, right time. <laughs> and
0: just take us inside some of those deals and, and transactions. Well, what were the types of deals? Obviously, as you said, the late 1980s in Australia, so a lot of corporate activity. What were some of those transactions that you were working on? So
1: one of the funnest things I ever did was was in very involved with, he, in those days, he was a very well-known radio owner and, and a DJ. He started off as a DJ. Mulray went to work for him. Called Triple M, we did their licensing and got involved with 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 um, with Rod uh, Rod Muir and he's uh, and, a, and a lady called Trish Richards who was his um, bookkeeper. Tr- interesting side note because Trish had a cousin called Neil Perry, and when Neil Perry, this young man in a party tail, decided he wanted to open his first restaurant in the Rocks, Trish came along and said, oh, "I got my cousin Neil. Um, he's got a." negotiate a lease. Do you think you could just help him? You know, he hasn't got much, can't really pay you. And I said, so sure Trish, let's we'll sort it out, which we did and it was Neil Perry went on to start Rockpool in the Rocks, which was that lease, which wasn't really what I used to do as a lawyer, <laughs> but it was just funny. But um, the fun thing I had with Rod Muir was, uh, he, he was he was a character and he was buying up various FM stations and all this sort of thing. Was also a big, he had a sailing ship windward passage in those days, and he was and, and he got followed by sixty minutes to do a sale of his business in of the triple M equivalent in Melbourne, and being the young lawyer carrying the bags, you know, I went was on the sixty minute program. I think uh, as a result, there were people, especially my contemporaries, just thought I was probably a better lawyer than I was, and all of that. So, you know, again, lucky break because people think you're you know you're probably better than you are because of where you are, and uh, it, that was a real opportunity for me. Also as a young lawyer, I got involved in some really um, great, famous takeovers, things like when, um, in fact, Glenn Burge at, the, the, at Fairfax Radio wrote, wrote a book about it, about the taking, the takeover of Fairfax, and there was a little company called Turan, which was the, which became Fairfax Holdings eventually, which started off as a shelf company in our office, and uh you know very involved in all of that and through through that whole saga uh which was amazing opportunity for a for a young partner there and, and and we saw everything and did everything with all the players in town in those days so those were good things i mean i was very lucky also at the time um in about 1986 or so uh, the, the friels happened to be the honorary lawyers to the australian rugby union the Australian Rugby Union in those days was amateur, etc. And um, so let's find the cheapest solicitor who we can use <laughs> to give them, you know, do the work. So, who might know something about rugby? And I, I think they knew I knew something about rugby because I still turn up to work with a, a bit of a nose and a black eye and all that because I was playing in sub districts. So, I wasn't no a great class playing sub districts. And um, so, uh, I got to know the guys a guy called Ross Turnbull used to run the Australian Rugby Union got very friendly with him and we it was just at the time where they were thinking about doing the World Rugby Corporation and having the Rugby World Cup so the Rugby World Cup started at that point and um I happened to be the lawyer so I did most the documentation for it the actual setting up of the companies and we had um, you know all the sponsorships and things and all that jazz and uh Eventually um, got to know a lot of the rugby establishment. This was way before it went professional, and uh, went the first time ever I went in a in a in a in a first class in an aeroplane with my wife when we were in our twenties was to go to Auckland for the rugby World Cup final, uh, or we actually went for the semis. Australia got knocked out. That and I noticed the players were at the back, and of the bus, you know, and we were in the front, and they ended up staying in Rotorua in a motel and we were staying in some fancy hotel in Auckland I thought this isn't right this doesn't feel good and it kind of quenched my thirst for trying to actually make sure that rugby became professional and got that opportunity in the in the in 95 beginning 95 and 94 when the rug when the rugby league clubs were having a were having a big fight and it was the murder packer and super league and all this and um, came up with this idea that maybe we should as a television sport try and own rugby union like they were exactly what they were doing in rugby league with the super league do it with union but on an international scale and that became peter fitz book you know the rugby wars and the whole saga through all of that by then i'd already left friels and joined it went with associates and with david and uh, richard were there and um some of the interesting things <laughs>
0: i want to ask you about Wentworth associates which as you said you joined in 1993 alongside david gonsky and others what what prompted the decision to leave the law and, and get into corporate advisory and structured yeah. finance
1: so to be very honest when i when i was in the law i, I started to hate um time i also felt in those days um the lawyers were much more involved in the advisory side of the business, not just the legal, technical. Um, boutique account, uh, le- uh, boutique um, advisory firms and all of this hadn't really turned up yet. There were investment banks and mer- merchant banks, actually, in those days, but they were more on the, you know, they were less, the, the lawyers played a much bigger place in the advisory, and, and it used to always, I always used to think about, I'm selling time, but I've actually gave this guy an idea that was probably worth more if I, and 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 also the time she's became a bane in my life i, I in the meantime david gonski had left and started he worked somewhere else first and he got in, started this winter with associates with richard Longes, who had also been a partner at Friels had left and um i think richard at the time got seconded to lend lease to work there um because they were one of his big clients and david and i bumped david and i said look i'm thinking of leaving the law i'm sort of at a point where i can afford to pay off my mortgage so that's why I, um, I'm not too nervous about it. my wife thought it was a bad idea, but I thought I, worst can worst can, can happen is if I'm not good at whatever i'm going to do I'll go back to the law. Um, I remember being uh, speaking to Macquarie Bank at the time about who had who early in the piece many years ago had been a client of david and 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 Kim's when I was working there he worked on 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 quite a lot of their deals and things and I had good friends there a guy called Anthony Kahn and others and um, so I was staying today, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do. Maybe I've gotta invest maybe I've got one of the broker and he said, Well, why don't you come join me? It's like a kind of a hybrid thing where we we, we give advice but we don't do it with with term sheets. You know, we get clients and so we retain them and and we go from there. And um sounded good. And there was a few clients who were prepared to come with me as well who were happy to not you know, not be as to, to give them advice on a commercial basis and kind of legal, technical, but the documentation that could be done by the lawyers and um, that was went with associates. And I think David and I were lucky to have a number of very good clients. David's much cleverer than me, but I think I was probably a little bit more pushy on how the business model should work. And between you know that and, 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 and everyone recognizing how, how brilliant David was, we got, Quite a few good clients, and we managed to make a um, do quite nicely out of it, and build a build an interesting business, which included getting involved in private equity and stuff like that. And that really came about from one day sitting there and saying, we actually have earned salary-wise enough to pay the school fees, the the living costs, and that. So every next you know you we weren't the kind of people who are going to buy another big car, another fan we're not just not like, I've still got a 12 year old car now. Um, Just wasn't what motivated us, but so you'd have to invest it. So we we actually thought, wouldn't it be great to invest alongside the clients and and, and instead of fees, we take some equity and out of that, doing that, getting a few little stakes here and there, we actually discovered, we had a kind of a private equity business. We actually went and hired a guy to manage it for us because we were too busy doing other things um, and uh, John Murphy, he had come out of Arthur Anderson in those days, great guy. And and that's sort of how, what happened to enter. So we had a little bit of a private equity. It was more like syndicates. We didn't go and hire a fund or anything. He, and he managed what we had and we brought other partners in if it was a little bit more money or whatever. And um, eventually one day we got approached by certain investment banks to buy us this and the other. And one day Investec, uh, from South Africa were looking and they had, a, they had a business in UK and South Africa were looking to get a to hold in Australia they had a small office they just started here and they were starting to find their way and they, they wanted to do something to get into the investment banking side of the not just the you know sort of to give them a bit of an ups and they, they met us and liked what they saw and thought we could give it a help them develop that bigger profile and that bigger business and we they bought us out that's uh, we went from wentworth to becoming Investec, and part of that deal was we had to work for them as part of the workout etc and uh you know david was became the like chairman i became the ceo and over time we at one stage we were co-chairman's as i was trying to get out of this year we were trying to get another one because we, we had a five-year deal which had got to about seven years and uh slowly but surely and then stayed there. it was great years, great company, we were very involved in creating the culture there and, and loved it and the people were great. And even to this day, a lot of the ex employees or people I worked with there are either working with me now or we work together in other of our businesses. and um, yeah, it was very good. so it was a great transition.
0: And as I understand it, that was in the year 2001 and you went on to then have a 13 year association with Investec Bank, as you said, I think originally as CEO, then chairman, and then some other roles as well. How did you see the growth of that business in Australia over that, say, 10 to 13
1: years? Well, it literally went from a very small-ish business to uh, it grew quite dramatically. Um, we we created a great reputation. By the way, one of the clever things we did at the time when it was very difficult for um there was a difficult time for 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 this for the super league in australia to get a sponsor and stuff and we managed to to come up with a clever sponsorship arrangement and because australia new zealand south africa could be involved and we could work in south africa there was a big exposure and australia we needed to grow and get people to know us we could do a sponsorship of the tournament as opposed to the teams uh, which gave us great visibility and we did that deal, and, and, and the South African business could afford more of it than the Australian, but when you start putting together what benefits they all got, Australia got a huge benefit out of that, and um, it, it was one of the great associations that I think is still going there between Investec and Super Rugby, but um, so very involved in in actually dreaming that up and getting it going, but it, but it did help us um, with our profile, it did help with the with the kind of customers we used. So rugby was very suitable for the kind of stuff that Investec was was doing here in this country, and uh, you know it was more of a private bank r- rather than a general commercial bank. I mean it was, but it wasn't. And uh, we get, we got a banking license here during my time. We got um, we we. Um, we, we we created some ec- some funds. We did quite a few of those. We had a we, we developed uh, from scratch a really good, which was the old Wentworth advisory business that went on to do investment banking stuff really well. And the private bank of which there was already uh, a started a business there with lending and stuff. We took obviously it grew dramatically as well. And eventually we did a JV with some guys um, to set up a thing called Experian, which was basically. Lending to dentists and things, and they were people I'd worked for before in their previous life, advised them in my previous life, and they came across and they started off as a JV and eventually became part of an InvestEx specialist bank, which got sold eventually to BRQ and uh, was a, you know, all those things were fun. <laughs>
0: Changing tack, you also served as chairman of Specialty Fashion Group for near on 13 years. Take me inside the role that you had with Specialty Fashion Group and, and I suppose how you saw the retail sector evolve over what was some pretty challenging years.
1: So it's interesting because Specialty Fashion started as millers and back in the day when I was a lawyer I was the lawyer to the guys involved with it um, and then it went with associates assisted them with listing and got to know them all well and um, that Miller's then went on an acquisition trail to buy Katie's and uh, um, City Chic and a few other, and, and it grew into, speci- into a large business with over a thousand um, stores nationwide, et cetera. And as that was all happening, I was, the, I was the advisor on it and doing the acquisition and helping the guys and, and got very close to the, to the main shareholders and owners, who's friends to, of mine to this day, Ian Miller and Gary Pearlstein and um eventually at a point in time where they were there were some shifts in the market for retail generally there was an opportunity for like a private equity uh, injection in there and we got involved in that as well uh, with, from Investec at that point point. and as part of that i i i came onto the board and uh became the chairman of the board and lived with that company for a number of years through a lot of ups and downs and um, had a lot, it was an amazing company, had some very, very talented people going through those doors that we got to know. And, you know, got to, got to learn a lot about retail and particularly fashion and, and plus size and ages. And, and um, as a result also in my, in, even in our Monash advisory practice today, I think we've got in terms of retail, retailers and fashion clients and that, we still have a, um, sort of we, we really do have a cutting edge then and, and the guys who work in it are guys that, who had been juniors of mine who today are much better than me running the show and, and we still do a lot of that sort of thing but it all stemmed from that, those early days. And we'd been involved a lot in, in, in retail in those days as advisors and then ending on boards as Rebel Sport and Freedom Furniture so we kind of got that retail, uh, understanding and 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 all those things came sort of going in circles as you, as you watch it over the years. So. One more
0: before we move on. You also served as chairman of Cromwell Property Group during the period 2008 up until two years ago in 2020. How did you see the commercial property sector evolve over that time, and and the business adapt to some of those changes?
1: Yeah, well that that's a really interesting company. The guy who Paul Waitman, who's the brains and the and the energy and um really sort of cromwell ad- owes everything too and know there are other people but i mean he was seriously the driver and very one of the brightest guys he was a lawyer who used to work at the freels office in brisbane many years before that but um came to see me when i was investing about some funding facility for allowing them because at that stage they were just doing syndications to allow them to syndicate without you know before they raise the money so that, but because by now people didn't want you to just take an option they wanted you to pay so we came up with some sort of a, a clever little product to allow that to happen we effectively f- pre-funded it and then trusted the fact you'd be able to raise the money through the syndicate on the i'm talking about on the equity side and 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 got to be close team through that helped them through that they merged all their um different syndicates at one stage to become cromwell there was about 12 of them and, and, and staple them together. I had a lot of experience with stapling, because I think the, uh, back in the day with, you know, I still went with, we were Dave and I went with, acted for Mervac and came up with, helped with this technology of what became a staple security, um, and, 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 and there, in those days, the tax laws were very different for rollovers and things, so you had to kind of st- have a unit and a share linked together somehow and that's where the stapling started because you couldn't roll the one to the other. So for takeovers, for swapping script and that, there was no relief, which came later. So that's why stapling wasn't needed anymore, but in those days, everyone had to go, we started to go stapling. And when they put these together, they also had the corporate entry needed to staple it. This was, so to internalize the corporate with the assets of the property, you had to do this because one was in a company and usually the the assets were in a unit trust for the unit holder. So that's where that stapling all came from and we got through the tax and all that. And he came to see me about how he'd staple it, which we helped him. And then about a year or so later, when it just, it had listed and was going, it was just quite a small company, Paul came to see me and said, look, we're starting to go to that next level and we just, we'd really love it if you'd join the board. It's all Queenslanders and you'd come from Sydney and you've got a bit of a profile and, and it would be helpful and all that. And I, I, it was the last thing I really wanted to do And it was a smaller film, but I really, I mean, Paul sold himself and me, and I thought it would be fun. And I wanted to keep my hand in on something outside, which was property, because I wasn't doing much of it anymore. And um, agreed. And we had an amazing run. The company literally grew from, you know, sub-billion through to tens of billions. And of assets, and we did lots of interesting things. And... um, Eventually um, we had a shareholder who then wanted to do, take over the company, so we had, the last couple of years weren't fun because it was, it was about uh, you know, the whole tactic of, 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 of all of that, because we wanted to make sure that all our shareholders got, you know if someone wants to own a company, they should pay a premium and all shareholders should enjoy that. Unfortunately, I had to leave that battle in 2020, it went, on th- went through for another year or so, because I'd been 12 years and under the stock exchange rules, you literally have to retire 12 years, otherwise you're not independent. Um, and I was intending to retire at, at 10 years and everything was gonna happen, but that takeover stuff started in the 10th year. <laughs> so I kind of couldn't leave the ship until the 12th, but um, uh, eventually uh, I left there, Cromwell went on to get um, the, the, the the party that was trying to control it actually kept creeping and bought more shares and eventually had enough votes, and I was gone by then. But and and they went on to take it, and so that's what happened with Cromwell.
0: Let's talk about some of your current roles. Our Innovation Fund. Tell me about that. So
1: our, we started off as our Innovation Fund. It's now called ORF, Our Innovation Fund. And uh, we, our very first fund was actually we were in the Monash Private Capital uh, Office one day, and my friend Dave Shane had kind of um, sold a left had sold out of a business and he was kind of I said, Dave, you're gonna get bored. Come sit one day a week at least in the office with us and things like that. And then we he and I used to invest in lots of little startups and and all of this together. And um, um, often when we invested together and we both agreed on something, they were the good ones. Often if he invests something or I invest something and we had it agreed on, you know, they they might not have been as good. So it was we, we saw there was a slot formula there and and we have very different types of skills that help each other and but we but we got very similar values and and things so uh, we, we 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 what happened was they brought into Australia the ECVLP the early which basically would gave a kickstart to our industry here really really did back in about 2005 15 16 and what that did is it said if you invest a dollar in you'll get a you can get a certain amount of tax deduction from it, but any capital or income you receive from it, if it's gone into the right type of company, etc., etc., would be tax-free. So there was a big incentive for people to pour money for the first time into venture capital, which was a very small industry in Australia. It was almost cottage in a sense. I mean, you had, had Israel had become the startup nation, Silicon Valley was all happening, and we weren't yet. But that that real boost that that gave. Um, to this day now, Australia's really plays above its weight and we've got some great success stories you know, all over. And, and when Dave and I decided, let's pull some money together and start investing and take advantage of you know, these new laws and stuff like that. And um, we discovered you need to have a fund. You can only own a certain percentage. Da, 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 da. So we said, okay, we'll make a small little fund. We'll get some friends involved. But once you start telling one friend and another friend and everyone starts saying, why are you leaving me out? Uh, so we raised our first fund, uh, which was called called our innovation fund. We hired a guy called Jerry Cecil. It's a long story in that of itself to, to make sure it's professional and done properly and all the rest of it. And then we hired some other people. And um, that fund was a $50 million fund. It did, Today, as we sit here, it's given back at all its investors three times their money. And it's the and We've still got eight out of the twelve investments in play, which on paper—and I say on paper because in this game, until you exit, you know—it looks like it could be, you know, five or eight times uh, their money. But we, we're very proud of the fact we've given every back, everyone back three times their money, which is probably not—I don't think there's many who've done it—literally um, in cash, you know, given it back. And uh, then we, when that fund. Was fully invested, we raised another one. By then, we hired a few more people. And so, IIF now has got it just launched, had recently launched a third fund. And we've, we've stuck to our knitting. We've never raised, we've always been oversubscribed, but always kept ourselves to an amount. So, we went from 50 to 100 and just on 100. And the last one, which was meant to close at 100, literally happened so quickly. We closed it, but it was really at 140. Um, but we said, it's too much money. Because in this venture capital space, if you stick to sort of the seed series A and you're very focused and you make sure you, you, you invest in the way we do, you can't actually, the weight of money's not good for you because you'll, be, you'll have to invest later stage, you'll get FOMO, you'll have to put money where you shouldn't put money and you might chase valuations that you believe but you don't really believe so you don't go there. <laughs> and we were big investors we, we, we investors in the fund as well as managers. So, you know, we, we, we're managing our own capital with a lot of friends as capital. We've got no institutions there. It's all, you know, friends and family offices and those sort of people in that who invest with us in that business. And so it's, it's, it's been terrific. And just to give you an example of how hard it is to invest well in the VC world if you do it properly, uh, our first fund. Um, took about three years to deploy about 35 million dollars. We don't deploy the full 50 because you keep some in case you have to defend or follow on, which you do. Um, and um, that took us nearly three years to deploy. Now just so you understand, it wasn't because we didn't see enough deals. We see the, the guys in the, in the business recently did um, some statistics. We see almost 20 deals a week. Some of them are, you get a deck and you don't even look at it, but a lot of it is interesting. So you have a first meeting or you do a thing. And then if we like it, or we think it's got potential as investment, then we start interrogating it properly, deep diving, all of that. So if you see 20 a week, you're seeing roughly 100 a month. In a year, therefore, you're seeing roughly 120. And if we're seeing 120, it took us three years to invest in 12 companies. So just to give you an idea, it's not. It's not so simple. If you do the spray and pay your money, you know, you have to do a lot of praying and you need that one big winner to save you. Otherwise it doesn't work. So a different mindset. And we come from an old school sort of private equity mentality and kind of um, sort of slight, you know, in the early days. I think now that people, we've had a little bit of a difficult time in the market for tech stocks, and there's been a bit of a re readjustment. adjustment. I think most people, are going back to, what, to the realistic way of investing. So, you know, I'm sure everyone will do well. But the industry as a whole has done brilliantly. The funds here have done brilliantly. The, the, the kick-on effect in, in, in all senses of the word for Australia's been amazing. You're also the
0: chairman and founder of Wentworth Williamson Management. Take us through that business and
1: what its mandate for investment is. So Wentworth Williamson's interesting story, there's a guy called James Williamson, Jimmy, who was work, came to work for me at Investec. And when he was working at Investec, we, had a sort of, we didn't have a fund yet, we had a, but we did have a, what we call direct investments from the balance sheet. We actually did very nicely with him and I hired him to manage that business and I worked closely with him in it. And I think he only had one other employee at one stage. And eventually that became sort of, a, we created an opportunity fund. But because he had never been a fund manager, I think David, myself, and a few people put a bit of money in it. We didn't really launch it properly in the sense of letting the, the, the client base yet come in because we needed to road test it for a year at least and make sure that uh, we had all the right protocols. That happened in about 2007, and then we had the famous crash. So thank God we didn't have lots of people there. But the lucky thing about it was we had just started. So we had a moment in time where whatever you bought was very cheap, if you know what I mean. Although it, our heart had stopped for a moment when we, it, it was a lucky break in a sense, and James did quite well. And that then went on to become the Investec Opportunity Fund, which was an equi- equity opportunity fund. And that eventually got sold out of Investec when we left and all of this to Alan Gray. And James went to work there and that. And then by then I'd really left, started Monash Private Capital with Joey Friedman, and uh, at that stage, uh, James one day came to me and said, look, he just wants a small cap type fund again where he can look at anything he likes. Because at Allen Gray, they, they're such a brilliant company. They do, but they've got such a weight of money. They're, they, they're excellent. They're doing amazing things. I love it. But I'm only looking at things where it's hard to have different intelligence to other people. Yes, I can take a different view and be contrarian, but I can't, like there's these little diamonds that I'd love to buy, but it's of no use spending five million dollar investment in a billion dollar fund you know so <laughs> so he with the blessing in those days of uh simon Murray, who was in those days that he the late simon Murray, who was an extraordinary uh investor who was running ellen gray he let james come to work i mean we started a small fund that fund became wentworth williamson we kept the wentworth just because we know we no longer had went with associates anymore invested in it was never used again and i just felt it was a nice name and williamson because it's james so i, I thought levy doesn't sound great but Wentworth sounded great so um, that's how it started james then with very small fund grew it a little bit and when it had a bit of a track record we brought some investors in and it's very much um, uh, old-fashioned long only lot deep value type fund so it did really well at one stage and then during the time when the tech stocks were going through the roof, it looked, it you know, very, very flat and everyone was going up 30% per annum and we weren't, but it's because we were, we stuck to our knitting and to his credit, James stuck to his knitting. And as a result, as things have turned, uh, he has some great companies there that, and his results are now starting to look nicer than others because the, the, wor- the worm turns and, um, but he stuck to his knitting. Very brave. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're you seeing, you know, after pay and zip and all that. And by the way, in my other, with my other hat on, when in the venture space, but pre-OIF fund, we were, for example, Dave and I, the seed money, the, you know, to Larry Diamond and zip, off a, off, off a, because his dad's a friend of mine (laughs) and I saw him grow up you know things like we had a few of those but that was even so we'd we'd invest that but it wasn't a Wentworth type investment for him it had to be cash flow profits something he could value something he could understand and stuck to his knitting but when you watched all these going through the roof and his companies were like just sitting there doing you know not much um, it was quite disheartening but he stuck through it and 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 fortunately had a lot of very faithful investors who are very happy to sit there as part of their portfolio of investments and now now he's having a good time but that's what went, went with williamson's all about
0: just two questions to finish what have been the biggest drivers of success throughout your career
1: i think the the biggest driver of success for everyone is try and keep your feet on the ground number one so that you 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 can get on with everybody don't take yourself too seriously but I think it's enthusiasm and, and drive. And if you lose the enthusiasm for anything or you lose the drive for things, you need to change. And it's very important. And I feel like every 10 years I've almost changed careers. And it's not so much you change what you do, it's you change the way you're doing something or whatever. And I think, it's, I think what my little mental um, sort of itch is that when I get into a comfort zone where things are really going well, it's when my wife tells me, let's take it easy, that's kind of my usually my itch. And it's, it's happened at different times and, I've, and, and often even in certain roles, I've, I've, got, I've, I've taken little side ventures, whether it's in the movies, whether it's been in sport, um, just because I find I need that, that something that makes me really get excited. And I think when you get, find something you get excited, you will excel. But, uh, it's just the way it is.
0: <laughs> Final question: What are the future growth industries for Australia, and how are you positioning the different businesses of which you're involved in to capitalise on
1: those opportunities? Well, I think technology in its different forms, and there's you know, deep tech, there's well, uh, is it, very important. I think we're going to see we're going to see, um, as you can see, cyber security, AI, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. All these things, and I think um, being a being a country at the moment, actually the the low dollar helps in a sense like this, and the fact that we've got such excellent education um, establishments, and with the result we churn out some of the you know the best, not enough of, but great. Um, you find that we've got technically we we're, we're really good here, and I think Australia itself is a very good. It's a small pool of 20 million people, but it definitely plays way above its. Uh, so, when it should represent, I don't know, a minuscule percentage of the market, it's usually two to. It actually represents usually two to five percent. Funny enough, whether it's Apple sales or Cisco or whatever, and and so it's a great place for new disruptive technology to test itself, to to make sure yeah. how it's going, and then to in, that builds jobs. That brings. Foreign dollars into the company, etc. I mean, we have example in our first fund. I think it's eight out of about twelve companies are basically most there, most of what they do now is in the states, but the R and D teams, the key guys, are are still here. the The foreign capital's coming back to the you know to the system. The investors who have made the most, the earlier investors in Australia. So all these things are just—it's like a, you know, it's like the the, wind, the wheel. It it allows it allows it to grow that way. So it's, I think it's a very important uh, aspect to Australia. I think Australia really has an opportunity to be a clever country, a country that's uh, can can take on the world at anything basically.
0: Fantastic, note to finish on Jeff Levy, a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again for your time. Cheers.